Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Now, I don't want you to think that we're always going to go this slow in Romans. We are not. Uh, but I promise. But tonight we are going to slow down and just take uh, three verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Has the God who prepared the gospel for all peoples also prepared all peoples for the gospel? It's a question Don Richardson asks and then answers in his classic book, Eternity in Their Hearts. It's full of historical information showing ways various unreached peoples have exhibited a divine preparation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In biblical terms, we would say that God has given all men everywhere for all time a witness of himself in creation as the creator. The next three verses in Romans chapter 1 talk about that witness. We're going to see that the witness is both external and it's internal. Externally, you read in verse 20, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Internally, you read in verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, in the hearts of men. And so let's look more closely at these verses to determine what they seem to mean. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Everything in Romans is a mouthful, uh, just packed uh, with uh, doctrine and uh, just wondrous thought. And this certainly is right up there with it. Paul, in verse 17, had just told us that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We talked about exactly what he meant. He meant that God saves ungodly sinners and gives them a right standing before him without violating his holy nature, when they believe what Jesus did for them on the cross. God justifies them. He declares them righteous. He sees them just as if they'd never sinned. Now Paul says something else is also revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God hates sin. His hatred of sin brings his wrath. Now God's wrath is not what we think of as anger. It is simply his terrible judgment upon sin and sinners that must come at some point. God's wrath has been compared to the waters that gather behind a dam. While the dam holds, all who live in the fertile valley below are secure to go about their business as they choose. They give no thought to their danger, really. When the dam breaks, all who have ignored their danger are engulfed and destroyed. Uh, and so God, God's wrath is sometimes compared to a cup that fills up and then pours over. But I like this dam illustration. Uh, it builds up and builds up until it finally lets loose. God's long-suffering with mankind is sort of the dam that holds back His wrath. As you read in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise of judgment to come, as some count their phone ringing, uh, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God is long-suffering. He suffers long. He's waiting uh, while men come to repentance, come to faith in Jesus Christ. But one day, Peter goes on to talk about that long-suffering will end and God's judgment will fall. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It has been revealed in the past and it will ultimately be revealed in the future. God has in the past intervened to reveal his wrath against sin from heaven. Noah's flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah revealed God's wrath. They were direct interventions by God uh, to deal with particular problems uh, that were overwhelming. Now, God will also intervene in the future to reveal his wrath against sin from heaven. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 describe the outpouring of God's wrath against sin during the future great tribulation that is coming upon the whole planet Earth. God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness is, among other things, a wrong relationship with God. Unrighteousness is, among other things, a wrong relationship with men. We'll see more of this, the specific acts of unrighteousness, in the closing verses of chapter 1. Uh, verses uh, most people are familiar with, it talks about a downward spiral, a devolution of of human beings after they have said no to God. Uh, it, 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 he will give us specific examples of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Here we're told that men are said to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That means they suppress the truth about God for the sake of their own unrighteousness. They love their sin and so they don't want to acknowledge the truth is what that means. Uh, they don't keep God in their knowledge. They turn away from the truth of God because they want to continue in their sin. What is the truth that they suppress? Well, part of it here is the witness of the Creator, both internally and externally, described in verses 19 and 20. So verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Are folks who have never heard the gospel really lost? Yes, they are, but not because they haven't heard the gospel. It's because they refuse the witness God has given them. Charles Hodge is described as, I quote, the most influential American Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century. It, it means he's a smart, conservative guy. Uh, is what it means. This extremely smart conservative theologian writes concerning our verse, verse 19, and he says, the knowledge of God described here does not mean simply a knowledge that there is a God. It is not of mere external revelation of which the apostle is speaking, but of that evidence of the being and perfections of God which every man has in the constitution of his own nature and in virtue of which he is competent to apprehend the manifestations of God in his works. This knowledge is a revelation. It is the manifestation of God in his works and in the constitution of our nature. Every man everywhere for all time has a capacity to know God. Solomon described it in Ecclesiastes saying that God, quote, has put eternity in their hearts. It's Ecclesiastes 3.11. You were created with an internal capacity to respond to God's revelation of himself 
as your creator through his external creation. That seems to be what this verse is saying. It's what Charles Hodge thinks it was saying. Let me say that again. You and I were created with an internal capacity to respond to God's revelation of himself as your creator through his external creation. And so we see the creation. God is giving a witness of himself and we find within us a capacity to respond to that and to do something with that revelation. We can either suppress the truth in our unrighteousness or we can seek after God. The external witness of God's creation is in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You've heard this many times, but it's true. Design demands a designer. Creation calls for a creator. In Psalm 19, 1 through 4, you read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge, which, you know, among other things, means that the, the fact that there are these normal cycles of night and day, night and day, and that we depend upon, say something about a design, a loving design. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, creation is everywhere, right? I mean, it's the creation. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, Paul, in full agreement with the psalmist, is saying that all men everywhere for all time have a witness of God both through his creation and in their own capacity to respond to God's revelation of himself through creation. Uh, there was a study a few years ago. It didn't get much traction, uh, but it, uh, I have some copies of it. Uh, s- s- researchers are finding that they call it uh, being hardwired to connect with God. They're finding that human beings have a capacity to, uh, you know, that, that couldn't really come from evolution. Uh, to know God. And we would say, you've already described as, you know, there's that hole in your heart that only God can fill and all that. It's, it really comes from Ecclesiastes, that verse 311. God has put eternity in your heart. There's something about, you know, knowing God, knowing that there's something greater. There's a longing to find those things out. And we can either suppress the truth in unrighteousness as non-believers or we can seek the Lord. Now, uh, he, Paul is also very specific about what attributes of God can be known to all men everywhere for all time. He says it's his eternal power and Godhead. We might summarize this by saying that creation declares both a power and a person. Creation reveals the power of and the existence of God. Now, this knowledge leaves you, Paul says, without excuse. It leaves you without excuse for remaining alienated from God in your unrighteous condition. All men everywhere for all time are held accountable for personally rejecting God's revelation of himself to them through creation. One author commented, and I quote, Men are not condemned for rejecting a Savior they have never heard of, but for not being faithful for what they could know of God. Men cannot be saved by the witness of God to themselves through creation alone. As we're going through the scriptures, we we have to find that you, you can't 
be saved just because there is a creation and you acknowledge that. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reads in full, He has made everything beautiful in its time and also He has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. In other words, there's a longing for God, we might say, or, or at least a capacity to know God, but you need further revelation to understand God, to see that He is a Redeemer, to see that He loves you, to understand who His Son Jesus Christ is, and those sorts of things. And so God has revealed Himself to everyone through creation, and He's given them the capacity to respond to that witness, but the witness of creation to your heart is not sufficient for you to find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You need further revelation from God to be saved. Evangelicals, therefore, like ourselves, have traditionally held the position that God further reveals himself to those who respond to his universal witness of creation to their hearts. And so I guess here's what I'm saying tonight. It's not unclear, but just to summarize, uh, what we're doing is reading the Bible kind of, you know, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we're taking the words to mean what they say. And we take this to mean that God has revealed himself in creation to all men everywhere so that they are without excuse. At the same time, we know that just knowing that there is a creator isn't enough to save you because even God says there's, there's more revelation that man needs. And so we would come to the conclusion that God further reveals himself to those who respond to his universal witness of creation to their hearts. And so when people ask, as they sometimes do, to kind of throw uh, you off track when you're sharing with them or witnessing to them, they say, well, what about when I was growing up, it was the pygmy in Africa, who probably is the most missionized person in the world by now because everybody's so worried about the pygmy in Africa. Uh, they always that was the question you'd read in apologetic literature and people would say, what about the pygmy in Africa? You know, well, he's missionized now. It's somebody else. Uh, and the idea was, you know, what you're telling me, I have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. What about the pygmy in Africa, the, the man or woman who's never heard the name of Christ? Evangelicals would say, historically and traditionally, that those individuals who respond to the universal witness of creation because they have a capacity in their heart to, to respond, God will see to it that they get more revelation. And some people laugh, oh, that's stupid. You know, how does he do that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to answer that for one thing. I mean, I, I can show you in some, I mean, this book I'm referring to, it's a classic, Eternity in Their Hearts. I'll end with it and you'll see an example. But, but it's not up to us to have to figure everything out. It's up to us to read the Bible and declare what God has declared. And this is what he's, seen, this is what he's saying. Uh, others would take a different approach and say, well, because I can't understand how God is able to do that, or it seems too big a task for God to do that, then I don't think, you know, those people have the capacity to be saved and these verses must mean something else. But no, this is the evangelical position. So if people say, what about the pygmy or whoever it might be today? That individual has a witness of creation and they will be treated accordingly depending on their response. If they respond to what is made manifest in them, the eternity in their hearts, God will see to it they get a further 
revelation. Theologian Robert Leitner is one of my favorite guys. He puts it best when he says this. God has given to all a revelation of himself in creation. In lands where the gospel has not reached, God holds men responsible to receive the revelation he has given them. When they receive it, he in sovereign grace sees to it that they hear the good news of salvation in Christ alone so they can believe and be saved. Response to God's message in creation does not bring salvation, but it does reveal a willingness to respond to God. It gives evidence of an open and receptive heart. Along those same lines, Pastor John MacArthur says this, Every person, even that baby, no matter how isolated from God's written word or the clear proclamation of the gospel, has enough divine truth evident both within and around him to enable him to know and be reconciled to God if his desire is genuine. That's a big, that's a really big statement. That, that you know, every person, no matter how isolated from God's written word or the gospel, has enough divine truth both within and around him to be reconciled to God. Is that going too far? I don't think so because Paul says something just like this in the Bible in Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. He's there on Mars Hill uh, and he's presenting the gospel to the intellectual giants of Athens. And he says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. One of my, it seems like every scripture is one of my favorite scriptures, but Paul just says, look, God, if you ask God, what about the pygmy in Africa? He'd say something like this. I appointed His time and the boundaries of His living and he should seek me in the hope that he would find me because I'm not really far from him. It's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Now, we would add to this an understanding that God saves those who, for one reason or another, cannot believe. That would include children who have not reached an age of accountability and those with diminished mental capacity. We talked about this a few Sundays ago when we uh, talked about David, uh, the death of David's son, with Bathsheba, but I want to go over it a little bit again because it fits into our study here nicely. How can such an individual be saved? On what basis could God save a person uh, who uh, did not respond to the gospel, who was a sinner? Well, salvation is made possible by Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Commenting upon the salvation God has provided, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. We trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. It's an important statement because it establishes that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save the entire human race. Those who exercise faith and believe are actually saved. Those who do not exercise faith remain dead in their trespasses and sins. The question we are asking, what about all those like infants and children who cannot believe, who cannot exercise faith? Those who cannot believe are never called upon in the Bible to believe. Only adults capable of making a decision are called upon to believe. 
infants and young children, and we would add anyone who is mentally incapable of making a decision, they are never called upon to believe in order to be saved. Faith has no merit of its own. When we say that you're saved by grace through faith, we're not saying that your faith adds anything to the salvation that Jesus Christ has, has provided. It, it, its absence in those who cannot believe, therefore, would not exclude them from being saved. It's not universalism. It's important that we distinguish this because there's a, a big debate in Christian uh, circles today. I, I haven't read it. I've read some stuff, uh, but I know Time Magazine has a, a big article right now about Rob Bell, and who's real popular in Christian circles and universalism, whether there's a real hell and all these kinds. Of, there's a big thing raging and stuff. So th- we're not teaching universalism. Not everyone is going to be saved. Jesus' death is sufficient to save every human being that's ever been conceived. But only those who put faith in Christ are saved. We're talking about those who cannot put their faith in Christ. Can they still be saved? And the answer is yes. God himself often distinguishes between the decision-making capacity of adults and children. We find one important example in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. God was explaining to the Israelites that because of their prior decision to disobey God, they'd never enter the promised land. God, however, would not hold their children accountable for that decision. He says, moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in. To them I will give it and they shall possess it. There are other passages we could cite that speak of children as having no knowledge of good and evil and so they're not held accountable. There are still sinners. They inherit a sin nature. But when they die, God can save them by His grace based on the shed blood of Jesus without faith that they cannot possibly exercise. Some argue that the Bible never says there's a particular age of accountability. That's true. There is not one age at which accountability kicks in. Anybody that's had children would understand that. Some children are very mature at a young age mentally and others are not. Uh, I didn't really mature until I was 27. Uh, You know, I think I was accountable for some things. But anyway, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, God himself distinguishes between adults who can be held accountable for their decisions and children who cannot. James Strong, uh, famous for Strong's Concordance, writes, The condition of salvation for adults is personal faith. Infants are incapable of fulfilling this condition. Since Christ has died for all, we have reason to believe that provision is made for their reception of Christ in some other way. Robert Leitner again says, Faith has no merit of its own. It adds nothing to the complete salvation provided by Christ. Since faith contributes nothing, its absence in those who cannot exercise it would not hinder the sovereign God from accomplishing in them all that he does in those who can and do believe. All who can believe must do so to receive eternal life. All who cannot believe receive the same eternal life provided by Christ for them at the time of death because they are able to neither receive nor reject it. Regarding the place of personal faith and salvation, even the reformer John Calvin insisted that while Romans 10.17, which says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God makes hearing the beginning of faith. He says Paul was only describing the usual method which the Lord uses in calling people to himself. Calvin said, Paul is not laying down an invariable rule for which no other method can be substituted. And so he leaves the door open for this idea that 
Yes, the usual normal course of events is for you to hear the gospel and to exercise faith and then be saved, but that it doesn't mean those who cannot respond are held accountable to the same standard. And since the uh, cross of Jesus Christ is a universal provision, God is able, without violating his holy nature, to apply salvation to them. And you and I... A separate, uh, we're, we're saying this is biblical, of course, and we have to be biblical, but you and I would agree with that in just the normal course of events. If I came to you and you knew very little about God and I said, do you think it's fair or unfair of God to hold people responsible for something they cannot do? You'd say, no, that's not fair. So what about mentally incapacitated people and children and infants and aborted babies? Should they be sent to hell because they had no opportunity to believe? And you would say, no. No, that, that's not right. And I'm glad that the Bible says that as well. Otherwise, we would have to say something else. And so, uh, very interesting stuff. All men everywhere for all time are in God's heart to save. When they respond to his revelation of himself in creation, those who haven't heard the gospel, he in sovereign grace sees to it that they receive more revelation. Thus, all men everywhere who reject God's witness through creation are without excuse, as Paul just said, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There is the, they have the truth. There is a God. They can respond to that, but they say, no, we like our unrighteousness. We'll see in the remaining verses of the chapter, they don't want to keep God in their knowledge, and they spiral downward into a, a terrible devolution of human behavior. Let me read to you in closing an account from Don Richardson's book, it's in a section subtitled, The Chinese and Their Writing System. I found this fascinating, and I did some additional research around it, and it appears to be genuine. You know, a lot of times these stories, uh, they're told and retold by different people. Uh, but I, I did some research with non-Christian sources, and at least the symbols are accurate. So uh, I believe it, uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. Here's his story. He says, early missionaries to China faced a formidable obstacle. I, I, I want to say formidable, but I just, can't, I just can't do that. So, they had to learn the Chinese writing system. As Westerners, accustomed to writing with European alphabets of approximately 26 letters, they gasped. Chinese writing, they found, used a system based upon 214 symbols called radicals. They gasped again when they learned that those 214 radicals combined to form between 30,000 to 50,000 ideographs. Why on earth would the sovereign God permit any people to develop a writing system so radical? It seemed that Chinese writing placed an almost impassable barrier in the way of communicating the, gospels, uh, the gospel to one quarter of mankind. One day, however, one of the missionaries was studying a particular ideograph, the one which means righteous. He noticed that it contained an upper and a lower part. The upper part was simply the Chinese symbol for a lamb. Directly under the lamb was a second symbol, the first personal pronoun, I. Suddenly he discerned an amazingly well-coded message hidden within the ideograph, I under the lamb am righteous. It was nothing less than the heart of the gospel he had crossed the ocean to preach. Interesting. I, under the Lamb, am righteous, which is the gospel. That's what Paul would say in Romans 1.17. 
because of what Jesus has done, I can be declared righteous. And so, uh, you know, sometimes it, 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 you know, you might think, well, you know, really, I mean, you know, how is God going to get this revelation to this person and that person and that person? With men, things are impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And that's, that's really what the Bible is telling us. He has put eternity in our hearts, and we have the capacity to seek after God or to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And just like Paul said in Acts 17, he said, man, you know, God knows where everybody is, and, and they're not far from him. They just need to seek after him and find him, responding to the revelation they have, and God will see to it that they get further revelation. Amen? What a great God we have.